Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege it is to be able to know you through your scriptures. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that it's been to study the book of Hebrews together. Uh, It was written so many years ago, but we can see again and again that has direct application for us today. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us once more and build us in the faith as a result of looking at your word together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews once again together. Uh, This is our third week since our return to it. And we've been studying Hebrews chapter 12. And we've seen that the author is encouraging the believers who are reading this book to continue following Jesus Christ, to continue running the race that is set before them. There was a great athletic illustration that was given in verses 1, 2, and 3 of people running a race and how we need to throw off everything that ensnares, everything that entangles us as we seek to run before God. And the reason the author is doing this is because of the same theme that comes again and again throughout the book. He's warning people who are following Jesus Christ to not shrink back, not go back to the way of life that they were having previously just because people are starting to persecute you. The original readers were most likely Jews who had heard about Jesus Christ, become Christians, seen that Jesus is the fulfilment of all the prophecies about the Messiah that were given in Judaism. And now, though, they are considering going back to Judaism And so he's been encouraging them again and again to see that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is far superior to anything that has been offered before in Judaism. He is the superior high priest. He is the superior sacrifice. He is a superior tabernacle. He is superior to everything. So do not turn your eyes from him. And now as we come to verse 12 and following, he wants to keep encouraging the readers to run that race. He's told them before to throw off everything that so easily entangles. He's told them to endure hardship as sons, as children of God, and that's what we looked at last time in verses 4 through to verse 11. But in verse 12, he is encouraging, verses 12 and 13, he's encouraging the readers that even though it's tough, you need to buck up. In verse 12, He says, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. You may say, I've been running the race and it's been tough. I've been going and going and going. You think of some of the marathon runners and how far they actually have to go. And towards the end of the race, they may be thinking, why do I bother anymore? I have feeble arms, I have weak knees, I may have injuries, I may be lame and disabled. Why bother running the race anymore? And that's where the author comes in verse 12 and 13 and says, strengthen yourselves. And he encourages the people to consider what happens if you fall out of the race. If you give in to the weakness that has come as you're following Christ, all the struggles that you're having, you give in to those. You give in to the sin that wants you so much. What will happen to you? And so he gives a few warnings in verses 14 through to verse 17 as to what may happen if you bow out of the race. We see in verse 14 that he says that some people may not see the Lord if they bow out. 
Verse 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If you don't keep going, pursuing holiness, you will not see the Lord. And then verse 15, it says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You may not see the Lord if you bow out and you may miss the grace of God if you give up. And then in verse 16 and 17 Esau is held up of someone, as someone who missed the blessings of God, missed the inheritance of God because he chose to follow sin rather than follow God. And so there's stern warnings here in verses 14, 15 and 16 as to what can happen if you choose to give in to the hardship that has come upon you for following Christ. And what are the sins that may so easily entangle you, that may cause you to leave the race altogether, to not follow Christ any longer? Well, four are given in these verses that we're looking at today, verses 14, 15, 16 and 17. Four different sins are given as to what may cause you to bow out of the race and then miss the blessings of God. And one of those is not living in peace with others. We see in verse 14, it says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We see here in verse 14 that peace with others goes hand in hand with holiness. Last week, we looked at how God disciplines his children so that we become like him. And God is a holy God. And as he disciplines us, as he causes suffering in our lives, we become more and more like him. And so if God is holy then if we are to be holy, we are to be like him as well in holiness. And one of the attributes of God is that he is a God of peace. He makes peace. Our prince is a prince of peace. And so if we are to be like God, if we are to be holy like him, then we need to be people who make every effort to live in peace with all men. If you are without peace and without holiness, this passage says you won't see the Lord. Now, some people look at a text like this and say, oh, here we've got works righteousness, that we're saved by making peace with others. But if you want to see God, then it's all about you making peace with others. But we've got to remember that, no, what happens with the gospel is that God changes us by his spirit and by the work of Jesus Christ so that we are saved by the work of Christ. But then if we are like him... If we are like God, if he has saved us, then we start to look like him. And that includes being peaceful with others. 1 John warns very strongly about those who claim to love God but do not love their brothers and how they are liars and the truth is not in them. If you want to know if you really are loved by God, if you really are saved, then you look at how you relate to those around you. 1 John 4, 19 to 20 says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Very clear. You claim to love someone who you can't see. You claim to love God. But then you go around making war with people that you can see. God says you're a liar. 
and the truth is not in you. If we look at the church today, there are lots of people who profess to have faith in Jesus Christ. They claim to be Christian, but in their persistent quarrelling, in their persistent making of trouble with other people, they show their true colours. If you're a busybody always making trouble, your relationship with God is questionable, is what is being said here in this verse. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You inflict great damage on yourself when you fight with others, when you quarrel with people. You inflict great damage on yourself and you inflict it on those around you as well, particularly if you're fighting with people in the church. I was talking to an older Christian recently and he said, I've cried so much about people within the church in comparison to those outside the church. And it's true. I don't fear so much the attacks of people like the LGBTIQ community, which get so much attention. I fear more and cause more pain by those inside the church than those outside the church, uh, those inside the church than those outside the church. And so we must remember to do what it says there in verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. When you make war with other people, you're bowing out of the race. You're following something else altogether and no longer following God. What's another sin that is given in the text that can cause people to bow out of the race? Well, it's the bitter roots that are described in verse 15. Verse 15 says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, what is this bitter root that is being described here in verse 15? Well, some people see it as a continuation of the idea that comes in verse 14, that bitterness towards other people is making war with them, it's not living in peace with them, and it defiles many, causes trouble. Now, that could be the right application of it, but the way this text reads is so closely aligned with a text that is given in the Old Testament, and we know the author loves the Old Testament dearly, he quotes it all the time, that I think that is the right application of it, is to what that text says in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, it says, Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord, our God, to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. Hear that allusion there in Deuteronomy chapter 29. There is no root among you that produces such bitter poison as those who say, let's go worship other gods. And so most commentators, and I agree with them, would say that in verse 15, there's a warning against heresy, against those who would go off after other gods. And we know this is a danger for us today as well in the church. There are other religions, just like the original readers, face the choice, do we go back to Judaism? Do we stay with Christianity? And you can face that choice today as well. Do I go to Judaism? Do I start just seeing that the Old Testament is a revelation from God and the New Testament is not his revelation. But one of the great dangers for us in the church is following Christian cults. 
Just as Judaism looks very much like Christianity, I mean, you've got all the Old Testament there, and you've got all these things that are carried through from the Old Testament to the New Testament to Christianity. And so they think, oh, it's not that much different. It's the same with the Christian cults. They often take things of Christianity and uphold those as good and true, but on fundamental things, they're different, particularly when it comes to Jesus Christ. If you look at the Christian cults, they often deny Christ's divinity, say he wasn't God, or they can deny his humanity, or they deny his atonement, the work that he did at the cross. And so they say all lovely things about the God of the Old Testament, but when it comes to Christ's work at the cross, they devalue it. What does God say about such cults? He says they are bitter roots that cause trouble and defile many. And so Christians need to be vigilant that they do not bow out of the race because they adopt some destructive heresy. What's the third sin that is given in the text as to how we can bow out of the race? We've seen we should live at peace with others, not make war. We've seen that we should not engage in heresy, those who would tell us to follow other gods. Verse 16 also warns, see, to it, see that no one is sexually immoral. Sexual immorality is one way that people bow out of the race of following God not just referring to the same-sex community, which often gets attention in Christian circles. We often speak very strongly against homosexuality, and that's what a lot of people think we're known for. But there's other sexual immoral behaviours as well. Adultery, looking at pornography. These things are sexual immorality as well. And they are forbidden by God as well. Why does God have such a problem with sexual immorality? Why does he want sex to remain between a man and a woman in a committed marriage relationship? Because it's that wonderful picture that we saw in Hosea so many times that our earthly marriages reflect that wonderful marriage that we have between God and his church. That if we are unfaithful in our marriages, we say that God can be unfaithful to us. He can say to us one day, I love you, and the next day he can turn around and say, I don't love you. And same with us. We can say one day, yes, I love you, God, and the next day we can turn around and say, I don't love you. It doesn't matter, because that's what you do in marriages. You go off after other people as you please. But God wants us to understand that that is not how he behaves towards his church. And he has given us marriage, and as we are faithful in marriage to one another, therefore we understand something better of God's relationship to us as a church. And we know that sexual sin is so destructive. It brings destruction on those who engage in it, whether it be different sexually transmitted diseases, it's damaging on their bodies, it's damaging to the relationships of those people. Damages wives, husbands, children, even parents can be greatly grieved, sexual misconduct, grandparents can be upset. We recognise that sexual sin is serious and it does cause people to bow out of the race. I think all of us in this room can think of people who are once following Jesus Christ wholeheartedly, but because of sexual sin, they've given up the race altogether. They've missed the grace of God. They're not seeing the Lord anymore because of their sexual sin. 
What else can ensnare us as we run the race? Well, the one that is given in verses 16 and 17 is food. As Esau is brought in by the author, he shows how food was more valuable to someone than the blessings of God. Esau sold his inheritance rights for a single meal. We read in verse 16, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. And we know this is the case. Some people do value food more than God. They may be very greedy people. They're always interested in food. But it may not just be greed and for a particular type of food that they're always interested in. It may be that they are always interested in food at the expense of worshipping God. And it may be that that craving in their stomach for food causes them to choose food over God. And the obvious way for us to see this in our world, is in our society, is by people who will choose work over worship of God. They see that they need to have money so they can supply their physical needs, and so they work, 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 even when it clashes with worship of God. Why do they not have time for personal devotion? I've got to go to work each day. I haven't got time to spend with God in prayer and Bible reading. I've got to work, so I've got to meet my needs. I've got to eat. Man's got to eat, so no time for the Lord. When it comes to family worship, gathering with your family to read the Bible and pray together, no time for that either. I've been out all day working hard. I need to relax, but no time to worship God with my family. And in church on Sundays, that's another day of the week that I can be making money to provide for myself. And so I haven't got time to worship with God's people. How many people who call themselves Christians are at work today and won't come with brothers and sisters to worship God because ultimately of food? They want to satisfy their hunger and so they choose work over worship of God. Here are four sins given to us by the text that consume lives, causing you and others to miss God's grace if you don't watch out. Fighting with others can be all-consuming. It's amazing how people can harbour grudges for years and years and then pass those grudges on to their children and grandchildren so that they continue to be bitter with people and fight with people. It's interesting how false worship can be all-consuming as well. You may be running a race still, but you're not running in the right direction anymore. You start to follow heresies that teach false truths about Christ, you're out of the race altogether. It's quite clear to see how that can be so damaging. And the drive for sex, as I said before, causes people to upend their entire lives. They make one bad decision and it changes their life for the rest of their time on this earth. And their worship of God is never the same. And as I said before, the drive for food causes people to abandon God altogether. They've got no time for him any longer. So what about you? Do you make every effort to live in peace with all, as it says there in verse 14? 
It doesn't say have a go, it says make every effort. Older translation is strive or pursue. And it's not with just Christians, it's with everyone. As much as it depends upon you, we're told to live at peace with others. They may not, your next door neighbour may not want to be at peace with you, but you should seek to make peace with him. person at work, not a Christian, wants to make war with you, you've got to make sure that you're seeking to live at peace with them. Are you tempted by heresy? Have you been thinking some things about God's word lately? Maybe it's not true. Thinking about Christ and is he really loving towards me? Is he really the Messiah? Or maybe you're tempted to sell the grace of God for sex or for food. If you do struggle with these sins, I want you to understand this morning how fleeting those pleasures are, how trivial they are in comparison to what God has offered you in the gospel. The satisfaction of fighting with somebody else, of making war with someone, and I know what it is to fight with someone, particularly from a young age with sisters, it's very satisfying to try and get one over them. It's nothing in comparison to knowing Christ and the paradise that is to come. You may have a very good reason for fighting. God gives you a very good reason for not fighting, for living at peace. He gives you the reason that you will not see him if you continue to fight. But if you live at peace with others, you will see the Lord. And the easy path of heresy does not provide an easy way for eternity. And the pleasures of sex and food are pale in comparison with the pleasures of knowing Christ and the paradise that is to come. The thing is, we are all in danger of being another Esau. And we have to take this seriously, this text before us. You may say, oh, I'm not. I'm not like Esau. I'm not red and I'm not hairy. But no, you're very much like Esau. You're set to inherit the blessings of God. You're here in church this morning. You look like people who follow Christ, who are running the race. And Esau looked like that too. He was someone who was set to inherit the promises of God. He was set to inherit great blessings from God. If you're not vigilant, when a particular vice comes along, you may trade in God's blessings before you know it. You may already be selling God's blessings for sin. You may say, oh, but it's just a little sin, it's not a big deal. Remember, it was one single meal that Esau gained in exchange for the inheritance of God. One single meal. And you think one little sin is not going to be that damaging. Well, it may be that that one little sin is the one that shows that you are truly not a child of God and God wipes his hands of you forever. That one last look at pornography, sexual immorality, it is the last one before God writes you off and no longer extends his grace to you because he, you've come to show that you're really not one of his children. So you, we all in this room, as we are often tired of running the race, as we suffer for Christ Jesus, we need to listen to what verses 12 and 13 have to say. 
Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Don't sell out for the fleeting pleasures of sin. You may deeply regret the consequences one day and mourn that loss with tears, as Esau did. We see that in verse 17. It says, afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Esau realised what he had lost, that there was no blessing for him. And he cried about it, and he sought a change of mind. Now, commentators try to work out what is going on with this text and whose change of mind is he after, because it is the Greek word for repentance there. He could bring about no repentance, though he sought the blessing with tears. But repentance is a change of mind, and I'm inclined to think that what he's seeking here is not his own repentance. He's seeking a change of mind in his father, his father Isaac, or in God that God would give him the blessings after all, even though Jacob has received them, that Isaac would have say, oh, I made a mistake, it was, it was Jacob, okay, okay. No, the blessings go to you, Esau. No, there was no change of mind, even though he sought it with tears. And maybe one day, if you engage in sexual immorality, fighting, heresy, loving food, maybe that you engage in that, Realise you're missing out on the blessings of God and try and bring about a change of mind with tears. It doesn't happen. When might that occasion be? Maybe in hell. That you are crying about what you gave up. Sex, food, for heresy, for a simple fight with other people. And you cry about it, but you can bring about no change of mind with God. Things are done for eternity. It is a stern warning that is given in this text. And so, yes, you may feel exhausted. You may have feeble arms and weak knees as you follow Christ. But you should strengthen them and keep going because it will all be worth it one day. Maybe not in this world, but definitely in the next. And so you should mourn over your sin now, the times that you have engaged in these sins, the times that you have fought with others, the times that heresy has tickled your fancies, the times that sexual immorality and greed have overtaken you. Mourn over them now, even if it's for the first time. And go to Jesus, the great high priest, the perfect offering the perfect sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. Go to him now, because if you go to Jesus, as I said earlier, we're not saved by our works, we're saved by Christ. And if you go to him, he will give you holiness by which you can see the Lord. He will give you a holiness by which you can have the grace of God. And Jesus will make sure you inherit the blessings of God if you go to him and ask for forgiveness now with true repentance and true faith. And then once you have done that, start to put to death those sins that are so attractive but will cause you to bow out of the race and miss the glories that are to come. Put them to death, not because that is how you earn that salvation, because it shows that you truly are a saved person and belong to Christ. 
Let's come to him in prayer. Let's speak with him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the warning that your scripture gives of how easily sin can entangle us and is very specific about which sins are so besetting, which ones can cause great damage to our souls and the souls of those around us. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many of us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Oh Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for all those times that we have done those things. Forgive us by Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. And Lord, we pray that we would put such things to death in our lives and encourage those around us to do the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.